Turn to Acts 19. Deliver us from evil. These were the words that Jesus prayed for his disciples. We might be tempted to think that this passage is about just a sinister plan, and indeed it it is, but the theme is also how God was able to work in the midst of some severe opposition and to show his power to equip his people. And as we look at the book of Acts, we see descriptions of three different missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, none more detailed or lengthy uh, than his encounter with the church at Ephesus. Uh, His travels at Ephesus provide us the the most details of any of the other stays that he had in in Acts. And this story is unique in that Paul is really not the main character. The main character of this passage, at least in verses 21 through 41, is the opposition. Some interesting things we learn from this. I'm not going to take the time to read the entire passage like I normally do, um, just for the the sake of time, but uh, would you join with me in prayer? And then we will um, we'll dig in, okay? Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to gather together and for your word that we believe is true. Uh, we give it the attention and respect that it deserves by going through verse by verse of these books that you've given us. But we don't want to just read nice stories or um, obtain knowledge, but we're looking for transformation, change of perspective, change of worldviews, to be equipped to live this life as children of the king, to do that well. So would you outfit us with what we need? Would you take gems from this passage, apply them to our life as only you can? I thank you for this dear congregation, for their love for your word, and uh, may you take this opportunity uh, to build them up and to strengthen them today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may know the name of William Friedkin. He is a director of movies. He made a movie in 1973, The Exorcist. I remember in high school being in the youth group and our pastor warning us not to see the movie because of how evil it was. And of course, that was only an invitation for us youth to go see the movie. Um, It became one of the highest grossing films in history. Uh, It had some major pop culture influence And it's been labeled by critics as one of the scariest movies of all time. But in a recent issue of Vanity Fair, Freakin admitted that he had never witnessed an actual exorcism. So he considers himself an agnostic and traveled to Italy to watch an exorcism. I guess they don't have these in the U.S. I don't know why he traveled to Italy, but certainly connected with the Catholic Church. When he returned to the U.S., he showed a video to 
two of the world's leading neurosurgeons and researchers in California and to a group of prominent psychiatrists in New York to get their take on it. And after watching the video, a Dr. Neil Martin, chief of neurosurgery at UCLA Medical Center said, I quote, there's a major force at work within her, the girl who was demon-possessed, somehow. I don't know the underlying origin of it. This doesn't seem to be hallucinations. It doesn't seem like schizophrenia or epilepsy. I've done thousands of surgeries on brain tumors, traumatic brain injuries, etc., and I haven't seen this kind of consequence from any of those disorders. This goes beyond anything I've ever experienced, that's for certain, end quote. Dr. Itzhak Fried, a neurosurgeon in epilepsy, said, it looks like something authentic. She is like a caged animal. I don't think there's a loss of consciousness or contact. I believe everything originates in the brain. So which part of the brain could, this, could serve this type of behavior? He said, I can't characterize it. Can I treat it? No. Many men and women who are masters at recognizing the intricacies of the material world cannot bring themselves to admit the activity in a spiritual one. Whether it's the work of God or the work of Satan, many people are blind to their existence until God chooses to open up their eyes. There was a man who actually specialized in the activity of the spiritual world, and he said this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. We spent the last several messages of... Uh, of Acts talking about God's intervention in our life and how we need to learn to expect him to move. That this is not, you know, meant when we read these stories that, boy, that's great that that happened 2,000 years ago, but, you know, we're in a different dispensation now and God just doesn't do that kind of thing. I think God can do whatever he wants today in terms of how he moves and in terms of the miraculous. Uh, in our passage today, though, we see the movement of Satan. Now, it's not demonstrated by levitation. It's not demonstrated by great feats of strength of a demon operating through a person. It's not demonstrated by a head turning 360 degrees as in the exorcist. It's demonstrated, rather, by a careful plan to bring disruption to the progress in the kingdom of God. Now, there are some common factors to this that if you follow the breadcrumbs, you can see the sinister plan of Satan. Uh, we have the benefit of seeing Paul's perspective as he looked back on the events in Acts 19 when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts at Ephesus? Most commentators think that he was referring to this. In other words, people acting like animals. I mean, is that normal? Or is something else going on when you see this kind of activity? 
Well, here's some commentary we might consider. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Okay, I want you to notice it's not just a false teaching, but listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. To deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Uh, Jesus talked about what happens when weeds overtake the word of God and the work of the gospel in, in people's lives. Uh, we read this passage in Matthew 13. And then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, this is Jesus, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So the devil works, whether it's behind the scenes or dramatically, to disrupt the word of God given to others. That's the work of Satan. As we dive into this story in Acts, we might be prone to think when we consider about the devil and his prowess that, you know, that's just too much for us to consider. And you'd be right in terms of doing it in our own strength. However, as we point our lives towards the direction of the gospel, we should take heart with the promise of Jesus who said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's guaranteeing the end result is victory. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A couple weeks ago, we recounted the story of the five missionaries that were killed in Ecuador in 1956, and we had on this stage one of our own, an Ecuadorian who was involved in a church that was basically grandfathered from the efforts of these five missionaries and their families and hearing the continued work in Juan Manuel's life and in his family was a great encouragement. Satan seeks to distract and to discourage and to even destroy, but God will see to it that his kingdom will continue to progress. First few verses in our passage says this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So these verses kind of set the stage and I think actually tell us why Satan was active. Paul announces his intentions, that he's going to seek to make progress. He's going to go to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And we actually find in another passage why he goes to these particular cities. We read in Romans, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that ought also to be a service to them in material blessings. So in other words, many at Jerusalem were poor. 
They couldn't meet their basic needs. So Paul was going around to other churches and other areas making a collection. He sends Timothy and Erastus to go before them to kind of prepare for the collection and also encourage the church. I want to suggest to you that the church is at one of its brightest moments when it practices extravagant generosity. And I'm so blessed to be able to pastor a church where I've seen this take place numerous times, certainly Guatemala. I know out of this church, over $3,000 goes every month to Guatemala. We supported and financed the entire year of Jobs for Life in Springfield at Life 360 at Fairbanks. We partner with Life 360 at Fairbanks. It's one of the worst parts of our city And this wonderful church is helping to alleviate poverty and working with people in a significant way. Or Syrian refugees in Jordan. Or children in Kenya who are being sex trafficked and some of them being killed and their organs harvested for an organ black market. You have given hundreds of thousands of dollars as the Spirit of God has prompted you to address these needs. And I certainly commend you for it. And I know God will certainly bless you greatly as you give to these kinds of things. And when the saints of the church are giving so extravagantly and the church is encouraged, it propels the kingdom of God to expand even more. And don't think that this is any small thing to just, you know, you often hear people say, well, you know, we don't want to just be here in America and give money. And and we should go whenever we can. But don't think that just giving extravagantly is a small thing because it reverberates throughout heaven, right? Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He loves it when his people give extravagantly. By the way, I'm not following that up with a building program right now, okay? (laughs) It'd be okay if I did, but I'm not. We read in our passage phrases like this. Paul resolved in the spirit... And then here's another, I must see Rome. Hear an urgency in that? A compelling cause to be a part of, a calling. It reminds me of the missionaries we had here last week, Daniel and Kimberly Lance. They talked about living dead, that we are dead to self, we're giving ourselves to God with whatever he wants from us. Here's a man who hated Arabs, told a story before of having his gun when he was a Marine in Iraq, wanting to kill them, having them on the ground, hated them, came to America, back to America, came to Christ. God called them to go back as missionaries. Two small children, has a business with his father, they leave 
And now they're going to find themselves in another Arab country as they go back here in a few months. They're going to where Christians are jailed and killed, but they are compelled to share the gospel to people who need Jesus. You know what? We're to be compelled here in our own area, at our schools, in our neighborhoods to take the gospel. We're to be resolved. We all must go in that sense, right? Paul felt the same way about going to Rome. Rome, I mean Rome, right? People there need Jesus. That's the center of the kingdom. I'm gonna go to Rome. He would go, but he'd end up in chains. He did not know what lay ahead of him any more than what we know what tomorrow's going to bring. Donald Barnhouse said this, probably many of us would not be able to cope with what is in store for us if we knew it in advance. Yet we go in the efforts to share the gospel because we know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church as it busies itself and however it can to share the gospel. So Paul was resolute to see the kingdom of God progress. He made it known what his plans were and then evil forces set out to dissuade or even destroy him. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I love how Luke says, no little disturbance. (laughs) It's a way of saying this, this was no little thing going on here. This was a big storm, right? This was a big deal. And notice that the trouble that they created was against the way. It's Luke's reference to Christians and the advance of the gospel. This riot that comes about as a result, you can read on in the story, it comes about because Satan is trying to stir the waters to disrupt the advance of the gospel. And he uses a man that's motivated by money to lead the charge. This man was a pawn in Satan's hand. His vocation was making little shrines of Artemis, and he made a good living from it. By the way, Artemis was the Greek name of Diana. We talked about Diana before, that multi-breasted idol the god of fertility, and this cult was around worshiping Diana or Artemis. 
Archaeologists, in fact, have uncovered silver images of the goddess Artemis, as well as numerous silver coins bearing an image of the temple. In fact, Ephesus would hold a major festival during the spring, centered around the worship of Artemis. There would be plays and dances that would take place during that week, kind of like Mardi Gras, if you've ever been there, that's nuts. And Ephesus would host this, and they would carry this goddess through the streets from the temple to the theater or stadium. Throughout the Roman Empire, there have been 33 temples found or shrines. In fact, I had somebody after the first service tell me, we saw one of those on a recent visit where we were over there. So Ephesus was the main center of this cult. Tourism centered around Artemis. It was called one of the seven wonders of the world because it was so huge and ornate. So this produced big money for the city, right? If you've ever been to Graceland in Memphis, you have a whole host of things across the street from Elvis's house. You know, this tourism trap of people trying to sell these wares related to Elvis, kind of the same thing going on here at Ephesus. Now, when Satan comes against the work of God, it is not uncommon that there is an instigator. And Demetrius Demetrius was that man. We don't know much about him, but apparently he was skilled also in unionizing other people against Christianity. He was able to put together an unholy alliance of people who were profiting off of Artemis. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know from, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, he speaks accurately about this, at least that Paul does say that. And he calls together other people to create this union, if you will. Uh, These were not just people directly under his supervision, his own business, but others who were in the trade of making these temples, little, little temples. Now, Paul did proclaim the gospel, and when people came to the gospel, they would turn from idols. However, he did not arouse the ire of the silversmith by picketing the temple of Diana, or staging anti-idolatry rallies. He simply preached the gospel daily. As lives were transformed, these kind of practices would would fall off. Sometimes later, after salvation, remember a bunch of those Christians that burned all the books related to sorcery after they had come to Christ and had been convicted of that practice? That was in the previous story. Verse 27, and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So here, Demetrius sounds like a man who's really concerned about, you know, everybody's devotion to Artemis and comes off like that's his main motive. And the appeal on the basis of religious devotion 
does not hide the main concern, which is what? It's cash, right? It's financial gain. That was, you know, the religious aspect of it was not his main purpose. But it's not to say it didn't have some semblance of truth because the, perhaps the regular citizen would be concerned about that, but Artemis clearly had a financial motive. Now, as far as Demetrius, instigators who rally allies to their cause will often cover up the real motives of their actions. I mean, when Satan comes up against the work of God, it's not uncommon that opposing forces are dishonest. And what I found won't even engage. They're unaware of their real motives. They just want to shout louder. We've probably all witnessed folks who create trouble. They like to gain allies behind people's backs, and they are on what they think is a holy cause, right? And then you find out later it really started with a kind of a personal axe to grind or, or some other thing, some other untold motive. And they end up coming against the work of the kingdom of God. Now, there's little doubt that Demetrius felt justified. There's little doubt that he felt like he was doing some good. And obviously, he had many people join him, but they still came up and we're directly opposing the word of God. And, you know, what excuse can you give for that? I think we have to be very careful here. Maybe one of the takeaways is our criticism of other works of God. Now, you know, we're not AG, we're not Baptist, we're not non-denominational. You know, there, there are other churches that maybe aren't what I would call my cup of tea. You know, there might be some secondary doctrinal difference But if they are preaching the gospel, people are coming to Christ, they're preaching the word of God, I think we have to be very careful about condemning other works like that. Right? I mean, the kingdom of God is a lot bigger than our little territory right here. No matter how justified you feel, remember the words of Gamaliel in Acts 5? You might even be found opposing God. I don't want to be in that position. Even though there was an instigator coming against the work of God and and unholy alliances being made against the church and people were hiding behind religion for personal gain, the church continued to grow. The church continued to be strengthened in the midst of this riot that was taking place to come against the church. I mean, think about it. The worldwide worship of Diana, the temple, and the functioning city of Ephesus are all gone. This union started by Demetrius is gone. Ephesus is a place visited primarily now by archaeologists and people on Holy Land tours to see the ruins. Yet the church of Jesus Christ is still here and being strengthened, and especially where it's receiving the worst opposition. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, on a smaller scale, I see that demonstrated even here with CCC. 
where God has sustained it over attacks in the 30-some years it's been in existence. Proclamations that we would never make it. Curses being made against us. My death being declared or being threatened. Instigators have tried to create trouble and speak against us. And yet God has seen fit to take what started as a little Bible study in a living room and now have a thriving outpost of God's grace. And by the way, he can choose to shut it down tomorrow if he wants. So we're living on borrowed time. I just appreciate the time. I want to do all I can on the time, but there's no guarantee we got tomorrow. I just want to use all I can for his kingdom. Our job is to be white hot for the sake of the gospel, to give our all for the kingdom. But when the opposition comes, and, you know, I don't want to sit up here and act like a martyr because I don't face near the opposition that other pastors do in other foreign lands, and most American pastors don't. But there's still other kinds of opposition and when that, when that happens in the midst of those attacks, and maybe you've experienced some of that as well, you can, you can kind of get to a point of saying, you know, woe is me. You might be a little beleaguered, and you're thinking maybe this isn't worth it, and you kind of back off some, and you can lose some steam. I understand that. I mean, let's just play it safe. I was really interested in these words that were written by another author of a book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, to the church at Ephesus, right where this riot was, was occurring. And this is what was said. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, a lampstand, that shows that each church that each church has value. That's a you know, valuable piece, a lampstand. But also, it shows a particular function. We're to shed light. Our testimony is to shed the light of Christ, the light of the gospel. So the church is valuable, and it has a God-given function. And as we operate in that, God is pleased. We can also do it in such a way that it's just kind of mechanical, I have this against you, that you've left, left your first love. God said to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 2.2 that he remembers their devotion at one point being like a youth who is in love with a young bride. You know, Christ walks amongst the lampstand, the church, and he searches out our hearts, and he deserves nothing less than for us to be like a passionate lover. Apparently, the Ephesians had somehow, some way, gotten to a point where it was, you know, more about just the kind of dead orthodoxy over passionate love. Now, we need the orthodoxy. 
but we need the passionate love. They worked hard, but their hearts apparently were apathetic. And when the passion is gone, we can't just sit idly by and act like, you know what, that's just the way it is. I'm an older Christian. That's the way it is. I remember my wife, when she first came to Christ, was on fire. And really, I'm to be honest with you, that has not dissipated. I mean, for 40 years that I've known her, her heart has been white hot for Jesus. But people that she worked with, one guy who was a Christian, right after she came to Christ said, don't worry, this will wear off. Dude was a believer, an older believer, and it was like, you can't be that excited about it. That'll wear off. And maybe it just made them feel bad, like, dude, you've obviously left your first love. We must realize the sin of not passionately pursuing and pleasing our Lord. When we've been touched by his grace, how can we approach it any other way? And I think we've all been guilty at seasons in our life of that, right? It's about more than passion, though. It's also about misplaced motivation, leaving your first love. Our text, our text says in, in Revelation that these believers left their first love. They didn't lose it. They left it. In other words, by choice, there was a conscious decision not to be in love with Jesus, but to be in love with something else. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Deserves our highest loyalty, but sometimes we fall in love with other things. And when we leave our first love, we replace it with affections for something else. Just fill in the blank. But we're told in other passages to love God more than anything on earth. In fact, we're told to love God more than mother or father or children. You know, you can make idols of your kids, of earthly relationships, when they supersede our relationship with Christ. I mean, nothing is more important to me on an earthly plane than my relationship with my wife and my kids. But Jesus has got to be more important than that. He's to be our motivation. A church can do all the right things with a cold heart. And Christ walks amongst the lamps. You know what that means? That he, he will judge the believers for their callousness. Do you remember what your love was like for your spouse when you first met? Uh, you know, how you found that person irresistible, right? Well, this wasn't when we first met. But it was actually last night. Janet and I were sitting on our back porch. It was dark. And she said, you know, I had this passage that I read, and she had to go get her phone and open up this book. We're on the back porch. There's no light. And she's with her phone reading this passage, and I'm just looking at it. I don't deserve that. So passionate about the truth. I see so many marriages where passionate about the gospel and the truth just don't matter. But Janet knew when she hitched her wagon to me that our life would be like this. That the gospel would be primo and she's all in. I never have to question whether, where her heart is. Stuart Briscoe tells a story of being at a church in Edinburgh. Can I get an amen? (laughs) (laughs) 
And a delightful young lady gave her testimony. She had come back from Afghanistan and where she was a missionary. She said how she was really enjoying the work that she was doing there. And then she'd met a young man and fallen in love. And he'd asked her to marry him. But she said, you know what? I made a commitment to my church back home to serve on the mission field. And if I were to marry you, that might change everything. So before I can answer you, I need to talk with my church back home. Wow. So that was why she was home. She'd flown home all the way from Afghanistan to talk to the leaders of the church. And sitting on the front row was a fellow who had the weirdest look on his face. And Briscoe inquired with the woman who said, that's the man. She said, he heard I was flying back to Scotland. He hopped on the first plane because he wanted to be there and talk to the church as well. Briscoe says, you can always tell who the lovers are. They don't give up. They come after their beloved. It's this kind of irresistible drawing, that kind of pursuing, that kind of passion our first love demands, end quote. May we at CCC finish strong, The end could be 100 years, 50 years, 20, I don't know. But from this time till then, let us finish strong and be passionate in pursuing our king and the progress of his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I'm all in. And I'm not going to apologize for asking you to be all in. Time, treasure, talent. There is nothing on this earth more important than to be involved in the kingdom of God. Nothing. Kids graduating, summa cum laude. I mean, Harvard, it's awesome, great. But is the kingdom of God being advanced? That's far more important. I mean, I sacrifice for my kids, but for the kingdom of God, I want to point them to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God. Then I've done my job. I haven't done my job if all they get is just good grades and, you know, make a lot of money. My job is only a fraction done if that's all they do. I want them to be all out. And this church, my job is not done until this church, every one of you, come to grips with that calling that God has upon your life. That's why we're here. We're not here to build buildings. We're here to be all out. Now, sometimes buildings are necessary. But that's not the goal. That's not the end goal. What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to do? Whatever God is calling you to do, whatever sacrifice he's asking asking you to make. Not everybody can go to Guatemala. Not everybody can go to Afghanistan or wherever. But what we can do is give our all right now. I mean, I get it. We still have to pay our bills. You know, we still have to go to our jobs. I get all that. All of that is nothing but leverage for the kingdom of God however God wants to use all the rest of it for him. Let's pray.